0: Welcome to the Holy Cross Sermon Podcast. This whole year we're exploring the life and teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke. We are currently in a series called Kingdom Come. We will be looking at passages at the end of Luke where Jesus prepared his followers on how to live and partner with the work of God's kingdom. Join us now as we dive into another passage. Let's pray a moment. Lord, thank you this morning as we come to the scriptures. We pray that you would meet us in them. Come, Holy Spirit, come and speak to our hearts and our minds. Come and fill your scriptures and open them to us. Come, fill my words, O Lord, that they might lead us to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I heard a story about an Anglican pastor and a Catholic priest who were standing on the side of the road one day holding signs. The Anglican's sign read, The end is near. And the Catholic priest's sign said, Turn around before it is too late. Well, as they stood there, a car came down the road, and they began to jump up and down and wave their signs to get the driver's attention. And, and finally, he looked up and he saw the two priests, the pastor and the priest in their clericals. He read the signs and he got this big scowl on his face and he yelled out the window, Leave me alone, you religious freaks! And he hit the gas. He went flying around the turn. And that's when the priest and the pastor heard the brakes squeal and a big splash. And the pastor turned to the priest and said, do you think we should just have a sign that says the bridge is out? (laughs) We're getting near to the end of our year long journey in the Gospel of Luke. And it does seem fitting to me that Jesus is teaching at this point on the end times. And he's painting a general picture of what life will be like between his first and his second comings. Now, when it comes to the end times and biblical prophecy in general, people tend to go to the extremes. On one extreme, you have people going off the deep end and becoming obsessed with dates and times and trying to figure every single detail out, while others go to the opposite extreme and basically are like the driver in my story, like, get away from me, you religious freaks. I want to counsel you that either extreme is not the place to be, but that we need to find our place in the mystery of the text. Entering into the biblical text, even though it is difficult. Make no mistake, it is difficult, and Luke 21 is particularly difficult. Now, by way of reminder, this is called the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus gave this sermon, it's an extended sermon, He gave it on the Mount of Olives, which is a hill that overlooks Jerusalem and looks down on the temple. And he gave it just a couple of days before his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so we need to know that this Olivet Discourse is not just recorded in Luke Uh, 21. It's also in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. They both have versions, though Matthew's of the three is the most exhaustive and the most detailed, particularly about the end. Luke kind of tends to focus a little bit more on the time closer to Jesus's own life. And so when you approach this text, this Olivet Discourse, we need to understand that really good Bible-believing Christian scholars have disagreed on how to interpret what Jesus is saying. So that means we need to come at this text with humility. Whenever you see biblical prophecy, you have to come at it with a kind of humbleness. That's how we always approach the Lord, but especially the things that are particularly mysterious. We want to come with a kind of humility, understanding we don't have all the answers. Now, Last thing by way of preface, biblical prophecy, and I've said this before, but it it bears repeating, it tends to telescope. And what that means is that it generally has an application in the immediate, near the time at which the prophecy is given, and then it telescopes out moving towards the end of all things. So if it was a prophecy given in the Old Testament, often it had an application in the life of the people of Israel, and then it would move out toward the Messiah, the first coming of Christ, and then it would find its final fulfillment in his second coming in what's called the day of the Lord or the end times. And so Jesus is operating squarely in biblical prophecy with an immediate application that extends out to the day of the Lord. Very important to understand, or you'll misunderstand how to come at the text. All right, so we're in the middle of the sermon. If you were here last week, Trevor started us off as the first part, Jesus is telling his followers that the temple that looks so permanent, so beautiful, so glorious, so indestructible, is going to be completely gone, and they're just baffled by it. But they ask him when, and he begins to telescope out to describe what's going to happen down through the ages between his first and second comings. He said it'll be a time where there'll be all kinds of false messiahs, false saviors, people that we'll want to put our trust in, who claim to be him, the deliverer, the one who will save us. And there'll be wars, and of course there's wars just every nation all down through time. There'll be all sorts of uh, earthquakes and natural disasters, including pandemics. It falls within the context of the thing that Jesus said would be normative or would occur during this time between his first and second comings. And so we can take what we're living in right now and go, oh, my gosh, this is what he said. He also told us that there would be persecution and the martyrdom of many Christians during this time period, and that would be a testimony to the world about the truth of who Jesus is. All right, so having laid that long foundation, Jesus now zeroes in on Jerusalem, and we go to the text in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right, let's see if we can dive into that a little. Jesus is prophesying and describing the destruction of Jerusalem. And that happened in 70 AD about just a little less than 40 years after the time at which he is speaking. What happened was that the Roman legions came and as he said, completely surrounded the city and they destroyed it. The Jewish historian Josephus. So not a biblical historian an extra biblical so a jewish historian said that there were over a million people who were killed in the siege of jerusalem and almost a hundred thousand were taken captive and sent into slavery It, it was a tremendous event but church history tells us that many christians escaped jerusalem because the words of jesus here in the olivet discourse now why does this matter apart from being some kind of factoid of history, like, oh, thanks for telling us that this morning, Chris. I I think it's two things, really. First, because the fall of Jerusalem happened exactly as Jesus said it would, it serves to validate the authenticity of his prediction about the end times. If he got that right, then it would stand to reason he might also understand what's coming down the road. And therefore, we ought to pay attention, even though it's really hard to imagine this end. I mean, let's face it, in our culture, most people are like, eh, I don't know, this is kind of weird. So so that's the first reason why we want to understand what's going on here. But the second thing is this. The destruction of Jerusalem shows that God is very serious about sin and about the rejection of his son, Jesus Jesus said in verse 22 that the destruction of Jerusalem was part of the days of vengeance to fulfill all that was written. Now, you need to know that God was judging Israel in these events. And that doesn't make God bad. It was because they had rejected the Messiah whom he sent. They had rejected the Son who was given. They had rejected God's offer of mercy and grace. And so there was a price that was being paid for. Now, as painful as that is, and it's painful, it's it's, it's awful, the way Jesus describes what would happen and the way Josephus writes about it. I've left out a lot of the details. As painful as that is, that is a pittance compared to the judgment that awaits those who reject God's grace and forsake the forgiveness God offers us through his son, Jesus. See, we can respond in unbelief, we can remain in our sin, and we will face God's judgment. Or we can flee from that judgment by running to his son, by repenting of our sin, by turning away from life, lived our own way and for our own ends, and running to Jesus Christ to ground ourselves in the offer of freedom and the offer of love that is given in the cross and resurrection of the Lord. We are in a time in which the scripture tells us all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Back in 2000 in Seattle, they were destroying the Seattle kingdom. That's where the Seahawks and the Mariners used to play and um, it was quite an event. It was a 25,000-ton building. I mean, this was a big place, and they were blowing it up. It was being demolished. What was so remarkable about the event was the kind of extreme measures that the company took that had been hired to demolish it, right? The engineers checked and rechecked the structure, the demolition experts like checked and rechecked and rechecked the explosives. The authorities evacuated everybody for many, many, many blocks around. And then when the countdown came, they had all these safety measures that were in place to allow them to stop in the event that something went haywire. The workers were individually accounted for by radio, The explosives were checked a final time. A huge public address system was was announced through the streets. Basically, every reasonable measure and more was taken to warn people of the impending danger. Friends, the Bible declares that there will be a final judgment on sin and on this sinful world. And like the engineers who blew up the kingdom, our Heavenly Father has gone to great measures to make sure everyone who wants to, operative word, everyone who wants to can get out safely. How does He do that? Well, you've been given a conscience, and unless you've seared your conscience through sin, your conscience is designed to help you discern right and wrong. And the Spirit of God is given to speak to our consciences, to help us to move toward the Lord, to draw us to Him. We have been given the prophets and the apostles who wrote down the words of God for us so that we can know who He is and to understand what His plan is all about. We've been given the church. The church is part of the message of God to us. And what we do here on a Sunday as we week in and week out celebrate Christ's death and resurrection, the church has been given to help us know and to understand the safety and the draw of God for us to himself. And of course, he gave us his son. The question, though, for every person is this. Will you believe and respond? Will you repent and turn to the Lord? The incredible love of God is available. And yet we get so captivated by our own lives that we often turn our noses up to it and go our own way. Many people do that. Every single day, you know them. They're probably in your offices, in your schools, maybe in your immediate family. Maybe you're in that place. And yet God offers his love and his forgiveness to you anyway. We'll go back to the text in verse 24. Jesus speaks about this time of the Gentiles. And it's a time of the Gentiles which will be fulfilled. Now he's talking about this extended period of time in which we're now living. Between the first and the second coming. It's a time when God's purpose is primarily geared towards non-Jewish people. He's for the Jews and he always will be. They are his people and his plan for them will play out in the end. But right now the spirit is moving in this time of the Gentiles trying to draw in those of us who are outside of the covenant of God with Israel. And that's going to go on until he comes again. The time of the Gentiles is what you're a part of and what I'm a part of. And if you've responded to salvation in Christ, you're part of this great in that God is doing. At this time in history the Apostle Paul spoke about this also in Romans 11 he wrote a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in so when finally all the Gentiles come in who are going to respond to the message of God's grace then God's plan continues to unfold at the second coming of Christ So he's described Jerusalem's destruction. He's told us about this time of the Gentiles. And then he again shifts out to the future once more. And he describes his return in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus says when he returns, it will be absolutely unmistakable. It will be an obvious thing. There will be some kind of violent change in the natural order, signs and sun and moon and stars as the heavens are shaken. In that lesson from Peter that Skip read us, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, so it's going to happen suddenly, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now that might seem really hard to believe, but Peter tells us, hey, just like judgment came on the earth once before in the flood, and people didn't believe it then, And we're caught unaware, so also a judgment will come again. But this time it won't be by water, it will be by fire. We don't know what that means. Does that mean nuclear war? Does that mean, you know, the ozone burns up? We don't know. The scripture leaves that part blank. It just paints this picture of the way in which it will occur. As the biblical writers were trying to describe, and even Jesus, who is giving a picture but not all the details of what's coming down the road. So there's going to be these signs, this violent change, but then he'll also, he says that his coming is going to be marked by dismay, right? The time in his return is going to have all kinds of perplexity involved in the nations of the world. There's going to be a lot of confusion on the earth. And he says there will be fear and foreboding. Now, let's just think about this year for a moment, right? Like maybe a few years ago, we would have gone, I'm not so sure what fear and foreboding in a nation looks like. But this year, we've experienced what it feels like to have fear and foreboding. I mean, think back to the early parts of the year when this thing was first happening and we had no idea what was up. And we were all like just, like, remember when you were panicked to go to the grocery store? You might still be, but, but remember those first days? And, and think about the way fear has captured our nation and the world. And think about the whole electoral process. Like we've experienced what fear and foreboding is in a nation. However, at the coming of God's Son... It actually says that people are going to faint with fear. I'm not sure I saw that this year. There's going to be a widespread panic on the earth. If you've ever seen a crowd in a panic, or you've seen a video of a crowd in a panic, I mean, it's bedlam, right? It's a free-for-all. People scramble over the tops of each other to try to get away from whatever is causing the panic. Now imagine billions of people in a panic all at the same time. And we don't know how long that will last. But amidst this kind of universal confusion, verse 27 says, there is cause for hope. Everybody say hope. 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 There's cause for hope because then Christ will appear. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So different from His first coming. He's not coming as a baby. He's coming as the Son of Man, the glorious one spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. This one who is like the Ancient of Days, who is at the throne to the right hand of the all-glorious God. He's going to be marvelous to behold. You're going to laugh and cry at the same time for the beauty of who he is. Others are going to be shocked and terrorized by it. But for those whose hearts are toward him, it's going to be like every happy ending you've ever imagined all rolled in one. Your heart will burst with love for the Lord. He's not going to be hidden away. We're going to see him fully. He's not going to come meekly and lowly, but with power and with great glory. He's not going to enter into his kingship riding on a lowly donkey like he did in Jerusalem. He's going to come on the clouds. And he won't come bearing a cross this time, but he will be bearing a sword. The question is, how do you respond to this? Like, what should we do in light of these things? Well, one, pay attention to what's been going on inside of you during this sermon. So if you feel resistance inside of you or you feel like, yeah, this is crazy and weird, you should explore that. Or if you're fearful, you should ask the Lord, why am I afraid of this? It is outside of our control. It is mysterious. It is outside of the naturalistic worldviews in which most of us have been raised. But it is biblical and it is what Jesus said. And so we've got to wrestle with this. So how do we respond? I I think if you're not in fear of it and you're not fighting it, then I think there's a couple of things that we can do. Be willing to submit your life and your future to the Lord, even though his will is mysterious. Like, there's a lot of things I don't get about the Lord. That's probably an understatement, right? But, but I'm willing because I've experienced his goodness and I know his love for me. I know his forgiveness. I'm willing to submit my life to him. Why? Because he's demonstrated his love not only in the cross, but as the Holy Spirit has come into my life and made me a new being, taking away the shame, taking away the fear, taking away the terror of God himself. So we've got to be willing to submit our lives and our futures to him. I mean, think about the followers in the years leading up to 70 AD. Jesus' people, right? They listened to his words about the destruction of Jerusalem, and they saw the signs as they were beginning to emerge. The armies were coming. The word came to everybody in Jerusalem. They knew what was happening. And the ones who believed him fled from Jerusalem like he told them to. But think about what that must have been like, and that had to have been hard, even with the armies coming, Because they were walking away from their homes and they were walking away from their businesses and the places where they were raised and where their kids were raised. They were walking away from their neighbors who wouldn't respond and they were even walking away from family members who rejected this word of what was coming. More than a million people died Not because they couldn't get out, but because they didn't when they had the chance. And so think about the disciples. They had to yield their lives and they had to yield their futures to the Lord. And that had to happen before the moment it all occurred. It had to happen on the front end so that they were actually ready when that time came. They put their lives, they put their losses They put their uncertainty, they put their fears, they put their hopes, they put the good things in his hands, and they held loosely to them and trusted him with the results. They basically put their future plans for their lives in his care. So let's apply that then. God has plans for your life too. Where you live, where you work, where you go to school, His plans for your future, his plans for your career, his plans for your family. The question is, will you yield your control of those plans to him, even if it means you lose things along the way, in order to gain him and be squarely where he would have you in his purpose for your lives? You have to decide that before crises come. Because you'll get to the crises thinking, well, of course I'll respond that way. No, you'll respond to whatever default you live by. And so it's in these times where we look at words like this and we go, oh, now is the time to yield my heart to Christ. Now is the time to yield my plans to Christ. And of course, we have to do that on a daily basis. And when we recognize we're not doing that, what do we do? We don't run away in shame and condemnation. We repent and return to the Lord. It's why we need each other around us. We need one another to help us stay grounded and moving with him in His plan for our lives. We have to learn to trust Him. And when you do that, you'll be a little bit different. You don't have to be weird, but you will be different from the people around you. Because the culture says, eat, drink, and be merry. It's all about you. Get as much as you can while you're able. Now, the second thing I think is this. Never forget, really hear this, never forget that the present world order will give way to a completely different future. Because if you understand that and you begin to look at what the Scripture says and begin to learn what the times will look like, if you understand that something completely new is going to come, a new heavens and a new earth, then you won't get too high in the good times and you won't get too low in the bad times. You won't lose your mind when circumstances aren't going your way or when things fall apart or when you're disappointed or facing loss or you don't understand what's happening around you if you ground yourself in that kind of eternal perspective and The recognition that Jesus said there is going to be a total reordering of the world. And so we learn to look for it. And we prepare. Not by building a bunker in the woods, not by coordinating ourselves off, sheltering away in fear, but by being Jesus' people in the world and helping people. Amen. Helping people in this time of the Gentiles to recognize grace is available. The love of God is freely given to all who would believe. That's the call. That's the line woven through whatever purposes he has within your individual lives. That whatever you do in the midst of that, it's helping people know the love of God and Jesus Christ. If you're a doctor, if you're a teacher, if you're an engineer, if you're a musician, that's your call within your purpose to help people in the time of the Gentiles find the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's the call of Holy Cross. Got to decide it now, though. Then we let it build each day. I love the way the message translation puts Second Peter 3. This is what I'll close with. It's, it's a really... Uh, well, I'll just read it. Verse 11. Since everything here today might well be gone tomorrow... Don't you see how essential it is to live to live a holy life? So to live differently, not weirdly, but differently set apart, right? In the midst of love for God, in the midst of love for others. That's a holy life. Daily expect the day of God, eager for its arrival. The galaxies will burn up, the elements melt down that day, but we will hardly notice. We'll be looking the other way ready for the promised new heavens and the promised new earth, all landscaped with righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, stir in our hearts a sense of something so much bigger than ourselves. Help us not to run or to dismiss or to be afraid of what your word says will come, but to ground ourselves safely in your grace to allow ourselves to respond in repentance and in trust to your Son, Jesus. And in that place, empowered by your Holy Spirit to live our lives with good news on our lips, good news in our hearts, encouragement for the world to know your love. We pray, Lord, you do this work in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.